You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Tried to start my Honda Fit last night, and uh, it had been sitting in the garage since Tuesday, and it didn't start, which makes sense. Weather was cold, normal, very normal. Uh, and so I knew this morning I was going to have to call a, uh, an Uber driver or Lyft driver. And so I, so I do that. He picks me up, and I always enjoy the conversations that we have when, when I come in with an Uber, Uber driver. And uh, so we're, we're talking, and uh, he's a, a guy who drives through the night. So he does 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Now, at this point, it's 7 a.m. He's almost done, and I'm scared, you know, tired. So we're talking. We get to the end, and he says, he looks at me, he says, you're the first sober driver I've had all night. Thank you. And to which I responded, you're welcome. I didn't actually say that. I'm not that clever. But I thought about it afterwards. And I wish I would have said something about the grace of God and pointed to the gospel. And Christian fails, okay? Christian, this is like a Christian fail right here. I'm giving you insight into that. And so... But all of that together, blue Honda Fit, the coldest day in like 25, 30 years, driving in, conversation with the Uber driver, all of it just made me think, life is weird. And the Bible's weird. And so with that, 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. Now, we are in the fourth week of a journey through 1 Timothy. And the book can feel far away. It can feel distant to us. And part of this is due to the fact that it's 2,000 years old. Uh, part of it is the, the situation of it. So Paul, an apostle, which we don't have, writes a letter to Timothy, a uh, pastor, church leader, which most of us are not, um, it's just a very odd situation about local churches in Ephesus, a city that is still around but isn't like what it used to be. Very odd setting, very odd situation for us. Feels very far away. And it's not just the, the setting that's far away, it's the language. Like the language of the book, Paul says some things where you're like, it just doesn't resonate with, with where I'm at right now. He, uh, he says, charge certain uh, persons to not devote themselves to Ms. In endless genealogies, you know, we, we don't talk about those very often. Uh, these men desire to be teachers of the law, and I don't, I don't know anybody who says I, want, I desire to be a teacher of the law. It's odd language. Um, even in our text, prophecies talks about prophecies. We just, we don't hear much about that. It's very, very distant. It feels very uh, distant. Even the idea of false teaching, which has come up several times in the series so far, is difficult to connect with that. So if that's you, if you've been here, you know, two, three, four weeks, and you're like, this just feels so odd, that's okay. Like, I feel that. I'm there with you, and I think that there would be others here as well. So the way I want to think about this book and this, this passage is similar to how we would think about Jesus and his morals, his his ethics, his obedience, his actions. I, I want to draw a connection here. So, uh, for instance, Psalm 1 and 2, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. You know, his leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he, he prospers. Uh, now, who is that? It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who meditates day and night on the law, who loves it perfectly. We see Psalm 1 and 2, these kingly psalms, that's Jesus. And we say, make me like that. Let me meditate on the law. I want to love the word of God. Or in the New Testament, we see things that Jesus does. We see actions and ethics. And first impulse, our first impulse should be, God, thank you that Jesus' righteousness, that he earned through his perfect life, is mine by faith. Thank you for how Jesus lived, that, that it's counted to me now. And we say, make me like that. So we're, we're reading this, this letter, this story, and we got to go, um, Paul to Timothy, that's not us, it's distant, they're different. And there's so many things here for us where we can go, God, make me like that. So that's the way I want to think about this passage. That's the way I want to think about uh, 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. And I am really excited about it. I I love this little portion of Scripture. Uh, But I learned growing up in the woods or near the woods um, that you never plunge ahead too far without backtracking a little bit. Uh, so you got acres and acres of woods, and everything starts to look the same when you're walking through it. You're like, every tree is alike, and the path becomes less visible because all the colors are the same, and, and, and you, start to lose your, you start to lose your head a little bit, and you get scared. And the best thing that you can do when you're at that point where everything looks the same and you can't see the path is you just, you just back up. You, you backtrack to kind of where you were, until you find something that you're, you're familiar with and, and you've seen before, and then you kind of restart from there. So, so here's where we've come. In, in verse 3, Paul talks about this charge that he's giving to Timothy. He's commanding Timothy. He says, Timothy, charge others to not teach different doctrine. And the purpose of this charge is, is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and, and a sincere faith. Charge them for love, love in the local church, the purpose. And the why was because there were men who were teaching things that muted and contradicted, undermined the gospel. So that's the setting of our letter. So charge these men to not teach that different doctrine. And then... He gets into why it was necessary with with the law. These men were wrongly teaching the law. And so Paul starts to explain why the law is important and how we're supposed to use it because they were misusing it. And then Paul spends six verses simply talking about the grace of God, making him a faithful teacher. Verse 17, there's a hard stop. Paul says, enough about me. Hard stop, verse 17 which is right here before verse 18 in our passage. And so here's, here's a summary maybe of what we've seen. Um, like Paul, Timothy is to call others to believe and teach 
that which is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Or to make a little more sense, Timothy is to call the church, the local church, like this church, to write faith and write teaching that agrees with the gospel. He is to ensure that the church fits in function and form and faith with the gospel. He is to protect and to promote sound doctrine or true doctrine. So here's verse, verses 18 to 20. This is our passage. Uh, three verses, two parts, one summary sentence. Three verses, two parts, one summary sentence. Here it is. Wage the good war for the sake of your faith. Wage the good war for the sake of your faith. We're going to talk in those two parts. Wage the good war for the sake of your faith. So here's verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. This work of waging war on false doctrine is given, is passed on to Timothy. And the word is literally military engagement, all-out encounter with teaching that undermines the gospel of God. In this picture, it's, it's filled out in 2 Corinthians 10. Here's what Paul says, kind of fills out this picture for us. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, meaning we're not using weapons that you would think of in typical warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So it's not swords, and it's not guns, and it's not bombs, and it's not modern technology. What is it? What is this war? What is this war on? What's the enemy? He goes on, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So this warfare is against, it is on knowledge, philosophies, ideas, misconceptions, statements that are set against and opposed to the knowledge of God as displayed in the gospel. And so that sounds lofty, of philosophies, sounds you know, education. And these things, we, we live in a world of lofty opinions. We live in a world of thought. Uh, we might not be engaging with philosophical articles, theological articles, but we are engaging with lofty thought in the shows that we watch, the newspapers that we read, the books that we encounter. We live in a world of arguments and lofty opinions. We encounter them lurking behind the words of a friend or a family member, maybe veiled in the storm, the, sorry, the, the humor of a sitcom or a news story of the local paper. Uh, it might be like the apple that I grabbed out of the fridge this morning. So I pull this apple out, 
I'm munching on it, and it is delicious. I mean, it was a, it was a good apple. It was a Honeycrisp. I love Honeycrisp. And I take a big bite, and I get to the core, and the core is like mush. Like, like what you think of the outside of a bad apple when you peel out the skin, you're like, oh, it's jack. The core was like that. Everything around it was good. It tasted good. It seemed good. And I get to the core, and I was, I was grossed out. That's what this lofty knowledge can be like. It is wrapped in that which tastes good and seems good, may even seem healthy. Apples are pretty good for you. But the core is rotten. We live in this world. Now remember, our summary, Timothy is calling others to believe and teach that which fits the gospel in that this is warfare. And so what are the weapons? So we know what it's on, lofty opinions, ideas. What are the weapons? What does one fight against arguments and lofty opinions with? Uh, For Timothy, for Timothy 4, this is primarily the reading of Scripture publicly, teaching, and exhorting. These are what Paul tells Timothy to do. They are the weapons of his war, uh, his warfare. Read from the word, explain it, or teach it in a way that makes sense and relates to the gospel, and exhort from it, command from it. Use it to call others into right thinking and right living. Now, most of us do not have that responsibility, public reading of scripture, teaching, and exhorting, at least in the practical sense of it here. But I think for us, there's a core there, a, a boil down, it's the Word of God. It is the Scriptures centered around the personal work of Jesus Christ. That is the weapon of warfare. So if you want to answer the question, well, how do I engage with false ideas that I encounter frequently, you, knew, you know the Word of God. In this charge to wage warfare is more positive than negative. Secondarily, it's calling out wrong thinking. That is a part of waging warfare. Primarily, it is highlighting, emphasizing what is true and pure and beautiful and glorious. This is a positive charge of highlighting the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this warfare is fitting with Timothy's call into ministry. Pastor Joe, he, he told us that Timothy came to know Jesus at a young age through the ministry of his grandmother and his mother, and that we see in his call to ministry that the elders of the church, leaders of the church, gathered around him, and they prayed over him. They laid hands on him, and they prayed over him, and the Holy Spirit did something very supernatural. There were prophecies uttered about the future of Timothy's ministry, that he would be used for the good of the local church. They lay hands on him, they prophesy over him, and the Holy Spirit gives Timothy a gift, a spiritual gift that works itself out in teaching and preaching and exhorting from the Word of God. And I I tell you that story not because that's going to happen to you, because it probably won't. In fact, it's not. Um, but because I want you to know that God cares about his church, that God shepherds his people, and he does so through leaders, through elders. He does so through men like 
Timothy, who are called to teach and preach the word of God. And it tells us something about God, that he is a father who looks out for his children in all the best ways. It it teaches us about God. And this war of Timothy's is to be waged from faith and a good conscience. A few, few weeks back, Jonathan highlighted three things that gospel doctrine does. It purifies the heart, strengthens a bent and broken conscience, and it produces a sincere faith. Heart, conscience, faith. Because what doctrine does is it works upside, inside, outside. That we come to know what is true, The Spirit brings it to bear on our hearts, and it works itself out in our life and in our communication. Doctrine works upside, inside, and outside. So if you are asked, why do you even care about truth? Why do you even care? Like, why are you even talking to me about sin in the gospel? The answer is a heart answer. It's because I love you. It's because of what Jesus has done for me. And it's because of my thankfulness for that. Because when we talk about true doctrine, it can sound like just arguments, just ivory towers going after each other. But it's not. This is a heart work. And this is what happened to Timothy. This is what doctrine did to him. It changed his heart, gave him sincere faith. It worked on his conscience, and it worked itself out in how he related to other people. So, part one, wage the good war. Part two, 119b to 20, is for the sake of your faith. Wage the good war for the sake of your faith. Here's what he says. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So by rejecting sound teaching, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And Paul gives us a case study, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he describes these two briefly, includes them as a case study, and he includes what happens when you reject true doctrine, and when you reject the call to believe it. So we're seeing this call, and we get to see a case study of what happens when when you reject it. And so what I want to do is we're going to ask a series of questions. We're going to evaluate this case study, this Hymenaeus and Alexander. We're going to work through it. We're going to ask some questions and see what the Lord has for us in it. So question number one, what did Hymenaeus and Alexander reject. Paul says this. What did they reject? Um, On the surface level, first answer, they rejected Paul's apostolic command to not teach different doctrine. They rejected what Paul told them not to do, what Paul told them to do, which is a big deal in the New Testament. You reject an apostle's command, that's, that's a big deal. In so doing, they rejected God's authority. So they weren't just rejecting Paul. They were rejecting Jesus and the Father. 
They were rejecting sound doctrine. They were just rejecting right thinking, right belief. And they were rejecting a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, the things that accompany sound doctrine, which means in rejecting those things, they were embracing an impure heart, a faulty conscience, and a false faith. They also were rejecting the love that issues from these things. This is starting to sound like a really big deal. They're not just rejecting Paul or a charge. They're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting God's authority. They're rejecting love. They're rejecting faith. Ultimately, they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. No ifs, ins, or buts. They were rejecting the gospel, which means that we don't need to have any sort of sympathy for these two guys or empathy, whatever you want to think about that. They were rejecting the gospel, the personal work of Jesus Christ. So in this rejection, what were they teaching? That's question number two. What were they teaching? Hymenaeus and Alexander. From the context, it seems that they were teaching the law in an improper fashion. That's what Pastor David highlighted for us, that they were uh, teaching it in a way where uh, uh, righteousness through the law was accompanying righteousness by faith in the gospel. It was a sort of gospel end, Jesus and uh, gospel plus something that you can add to it. That's what they were teaching, and which is very clearly different doctrine. That is different than what Jesus taught. That's different than what any of the apostles taught. That's different than what the Old Testament tells us about the law and about the redemptive work of God and Jesus Christ. Gospel plus. And this isn't the only example of false teaching in in the New Testament. Uh, Galatians 2, Peter was teaching a gospel plus by saying you needed to obey the law in, in circumcision plus faith in the gospel. That was his gospel plus misapplication of the law. Hymenaeus in, in the next letter to Timothy, he shows up again, can't stay out of trouble. He's teaching that the bodily resurrection of believers, so, so Jesus is going to return, there's going to be a bodily resurrection, bodies in the grave and out of the grave, and it's going to be great. He's teaching that it already happened, which undermined the gospel, because when Jesus rose from the grave, He secured our resurrection. So he's teaching something that undermines the gospel. Look, it's kind of hidden, right? It's a little veiled. Even today, there are some ideas that are taught that undermine the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So teaching that hell does not exist, that it's not a real place, uh, undermines the consequence for not embracing the gospel, for rejecting it. Teaching that there are multiple pathways to God undermines the exclusivity of Jesus. There's only one way. Teaching a progressive view of of the law where it was situational and setting and no longer applies in any manner today undermines the fact that Jesus perfectly kept it and in so doing valued the law. The one that really concerns me right now, the relationship between Faith and healing. Uh, The idea that if I have enough faith, more healing is going to happen. I'm going to be healed. People around me. That's dangerous. 
It undermines the result of faith, what the New Testament gives us as the result of faith, but it sounds so close to being right. Different doctrine does not always slap you in the face. I wish it did. It won't always sound like, was Jesus actually real? Or uh, did he really come back from the dead? It doesn't always sound that clear. So these dudes rejected Paul's charge and continued teaching things that contradicted the gospel. What was the result? They made shipwreck of their faith. And a shipwreck is when a ship gets wrecked. When it hits something that makes it unusable. And and the funny thing is, is a boat um, only has to be hurt in a small area for it to be uh, unusable. You could be on the lake in a gorgeous boat sipping a tasty non-alcoholic beverage and you could be beautiful captain's chair, a couple of 60 horsepower motors behind you cruising along, but all it takes is one good hole in the hole and you're going down. And Paul knew something about this because he was shipwrecked three times. Lesson, don't go sailing with Paul. Here's the illustration. Faith is the vessel that brings us to our destination. The destination is Jesus. Faith is the vessel that brings us to him. And I don't want you to think about the Titanic so so much. It's a big shipwreck. Don't think about the Titanic as much as a sailboat. A sailboat doesn't have, you know, typically doesn't have any sort of like motor or anything that propels it along. It's totally dependent on the sail and the wind. No wind, no sailing. I Googled it this morning just to make sure. Paul never rode in a boat with a motor. So faith is the vessel and the destination is Jesus, but the wind, you have to have the wind. And what is it? What is the wind that keeps the boat moving? It is the faithful teaching of the word of God, which the Holy Spirit infuses, enters into, becomes a part of, motivates, and it moves the boat. So what shipwrecks the boat when the wrong winds enter the sail and they carry it away? They carry to unsafe waters. And if the wind keeps blowing into those sails, you're going to get shipwrecked. Or how do you not shipwreck your faith? You embrace sound doctrine and sound teaching. You receive it. So that's your case study. Two men reject sound doctrine, the exhortation of Timothy and Paul, and ultimately the gospel. They reject the gospel, and in so doing, they shipwreck their faith. And so what does Paul do with them? Which is such a great question. What do you do when this happens? Shipwreck their faith, influencing others to the same. What do you do? You hand them over to Satan. That's what he says. Look at that. Band, you guys ready? You guys come back up, and we'll tie this thing all together. Just kidding. What does Paul do with him? He hands them over to Satan. That is that faraway language that we're talking about. That sounds so odd to us. So I have a few question marks. I had a lot of question marks at the beginning of all this. There's still a couple more question marks in the ditch, but I feel like the road's clear. 
So let's travel it together. A couple of observations about this handing over to Satan. One, this handing over to Satan is a visible act that reflects a spiritual reality. Spiritually, these men shipwrecked their faith. There are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Jesus is the ruler over God's kingdom. Satan is the ruler over the kingdom of this world. The local church is the visible picture and representation of God's kingdom. Jesus is king. Church is a manifestation of it. And Hymenaeus and Alexander are teaching Satan's dogma. They are acting as ambassadors on behalf of Satan's kingdom. This is why he uh, refers to false teaching as the doctrine of demons. These men are convincing people who belong to God of things that belong to Satan. Uh, These men are working for Satan's good and against the good of God's people. Paul calls them blasphemers, which is what he said of himself a few verses earlier before Jesus saved him. Which means he's saying, these guys don't know Jesus. They're not trusting the gospel. They're teaching a different doctrine. They are blasphemers like I was. And so, observation number two, the act is to put these people out of the church. That's what handed over to Satan means. It's to put them outside of the local body of Christ. Now, here at Cities, we do not have bodyguards that stand by the front doors to make sure Hymenaeus and Alexander don't get in. It's not what Paul has in mind here. It's not the idea. Um, The idea, in fact, uh, uh, Hymenaeus shows up later, which means he's still around. Like, he's hanging around the local churches. It's not like they kicked him out and you never see him again. They're still hanging around. The idea is this. Um, There is, at Seared Cities Church, a covenant membership, a covenant family. And so my wife and I, we committed to it. First congregational meeting we came to, we committed to it. We covenanted with, with many of you in here, and we made promises about what we would do and what we wouldn't do and what we would believe, and, and we covenanted together. But if we give ourselves over, my wife and I, our family, if we give ourselves over to beliefs and actions that are clearly outside of the kingdom of God and contradicting the gospel, there is no other act to take than to put us out. You get that? This spiritual reality, visible action, it's like they're already out. So they don't belong. They don't belong to us. We want them to hear the gospel. We want, we want them to, to repent. And that gets us to the third observation. The purpose of this act is repentance recovery, and restoration. Putting someone out from the church is a very serious business. But it is not done in judgment or, or hatred or condemnation. It is done in love. Here's how Paul says it. I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I put them out of the family, out of the visible family, so that they would learn the gospel. And there's two ways that this works. The Holy Spirit uses this act 
to awaken a person to his or her own faithlessness. Like in the middle of summer, when you jump into Lake Superior and the shock just almost like it knocks you out, is like that. The shock of this action of visibly seeing, I'm, no, I'm not in it, is a shock to the soul. And under Christ's kingship, Satan is used as an instrument of good. That is an amazing thing. That in Christ's kingship, Satan is used as an instrument by which people are restored, recovered, and repent. It's amazing. So that is his purpose. It is inherently loving, this action to Hymenaeus and Alexander. So by rejecting sound doctrine or sound teaching, some have made shipwreck of their faith. That's Hymenaeus and Alexander. So to pull it all together, wage the good war for the sake of your faith. It'd be easy to say that negatively. You don't want to be shipwrecked, do you? I don't want to say it like that. I want to say it this way. Jesus is the greatest, most beautiful, and delightful treasure you could ever experience. He will satisfy your soul. He will provide for you in every manner. His love will become the song that your heart longs to sing. Therefore, wage the good war that you would reach your destination, which is this beautiful Jesus. Wage war on yourself, your thoughts, which speak lies. Wage war with the word. Fill it. Wage war on yourself, your intake, which includes myriads of false ideas. Wage war on your intake. Wage war on your church. Graciously, lovingly, the people that are around you that you know and love, talk about the Bible and the gospel with them. Wage war on your church and wage war on your world with the gospel on the culture, on the ideas of your peers. And that doesn't mean be a Facebook warrior. It means engage with false ideas. Be a part of that work. Know your Bibles. So wage war on yourself, your church, your world by protecting and promoting the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Or wage war by pursuing the Bible in relationship. Give yourself to the Word of God with God's people, and then bring others who maybe don't know Jesus into that. Wage war by seeking to know the real Jesus in the true gospel. Wage war by pursuing avenues of growth in your understanding of the Word. Wage war by wielding the Word in various contexts and in your own heart and mind. Use the Bible. Know the Bible. Memorize the Bible if you can. Wage the good war for the sake of your faith. And the table is one of the ways we here at Cities Church wage war. 
we realize that as believers, we are absolutely dependent on frequent remembering of the gospel. We need to think and hear and experience the personal work of Jesus Christ, who is the fountain of true doctrine, the perfect example of obedience to it, embodies what it means for true doctrine to have its right effect. Jesus had a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith that produced love. Wage the good war. Let's pray. Father, we we recognize that, that we have fallen, that we have tripped up, that we, left to our own devices, will wreck our faith, that we will shipwreck ourselves. We recognize that we need you. We need Jesus. And we need the Holy Spirit to minister to us, to bring Jesus near to our hearts and to our minds by the word. So, Father, do that. We ask that you would do that, that we would have great pleasure in Jesus, and ultimately that you would be glorified in that. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.